is from Hebrews 8, 1 through 6. Please follow along as I read the passage aloud for us. Now the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If you were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve as a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. On the mountain. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is, he is, mediator is superior to the old one since the new covenant is established on better promises. This is God's word. Good morning, everyone. Good to be with you this morning. Um, we are going to continue in this series. Uh, I, after last week, we started this series on what are historically called the transcendentals, and I've never heard in like, I don't know, 14 years of teaching here, 13 years, whatever, um, a teaching that more people walked up to me and said, that was interesting. So <laughs> and I take that as a good thing, I think, I hope. Some of you probably didn't mean it good, but I took it as a good thing, because I do think this is interesting. I, can you, uh, a little hot, sorry, Hayden. I uh, love this topic. Um, if you are, so some, some um, before we get into it, a little bit of um, uh, uh, disclaimers. The first is, if you're new here, um, just hang on. We, we, very soon, in like three weeks, we're going to get into the book of Mark, and it will all make sense, okay? We'll just get in the book of Mark, and we'll stay there for a while, um, and it'll be really, really amazing. I love the book of Mark. So we get to do that, and we get to finish the book of Mark um, after this series. So we're really stoked about that. Um, this series is uh, not expository, and I think, I think you know that. It doesn't, like, I'm not looking at a text like we do in Mark, and then exposit it and look at what the text meant in its context and all the stuff that we studied in our Bible. What I'm doing in this series is theology, I'm taking the truths about who God is and what has been historically said about God and how we then order our lives around who God is, taken from the scriptures, of course. So this is kind of more of like, I don't know, Paul might call this, I might be speaking too highly of this, but Paul might call this solid food. This is like something that's, um, that's a little bit more dense for some people. I, even for me, I mean, this is really dense for me. It's hard to write these sermons because they are so dense. Like, how do you make these things that are super theological into a sermon? They're very, very hard. So these are more teachings. Now, if you are, like, have been, or one of those person, people that like to connect the dots, this series does connect the dots to everything that we've been talking about since we've been in this building. This series connects the dots with our triangle of transformation, if you remember what that is. This connects the dots of our... Um, our rule of life and all the practices that we're doing. This connects dots of the theology of the body and that series that we did last year. Um, this connects uh, why we talk about rootedness and everything we did at AVP. This series connects all of it. And how it connects all of it, again, could be 15 hours. So again, this is just gonna be, if, you're, if you can connect the dots, my hope is that you will connect the dots. And if not, just keep journeying with us. It'll click, it will click eventually, my, my hope is. Um, today, 
we are going to be learning. I'll do a little bit more definitions today. We're going to be learning on what are classically called the transcendentals, the good, the beautiful, and the true. So we'll do that today in, in a couple of ways. Um, we'll start by talking about Lauren Hill, because you have to when you're talking about the good, beautiful, and true. Then um, we'll talk about meaning and how we lost it. And then I like to give some definitions of what we're talking about when we talk about good, beautiful, and true. And then, of course, that will lead us to the, to the movie Ratatouille, obviously. And then we'll end by talking about the possibilities of beauty in our cultural moment. So a lot of stuff to cover. Let me pray. Lord, would you be with us? We pray that prayer of illumination, that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds to see that which can only be revealed to us by the power of your spirit. Thank you for revelatory knowledge that you offer to us in Christ. So do that this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. So first, Lauryn Hill. This album, uh, Lauryn Hill Unplugged, uh, if you haven't heard this album, it is a gem. This album was recorded in 2001. Was anyone not born in 2001? <laughs> There's probably someone. Oh, yep, so I saw a hand. Another hand? Okay, we probably weren't born then, and a lot of people in here are feeling very old. Um, this album was recorded in 2001, and it was actually one of the coolest things that MTV has ever done, and that's saying a lot, because they've done some good things, but they've done a lot of crap stuff, too. Um, MTV used to do this thing where they would take super popular artists, put them in a vibey small studio with a small audience of devoted fans, and have them do all of their songs unplugged, like coffeehouse vibes. And it was incredible. Um, and I was like into all of them, well, almost all of them. I was just into them. They're, I'm still into them to this day. They're very, very good. Now, I was only a Christian for a few years when this particular album came out. I think I bought the CD of this album at Starbucks. Do you remember when C Starbucks used to sell CDs? Do you guys remember that? Yeah, I bought this at Starbucks. And it was probably right after ordering like an iced upside down caramel macchiato or something like that, which is a gateway drug, by the way. Just be, be, beware. Now, this album did something to me. I remember it, it like grabbed me and took hold of me. It arrested me. I loved Lauryn Hill uh, and her masterpiece, Miseducation of Lauryn Hill, but this album with, I think it maybe it was her authenticity, uh, stripped-backed vulnerability mixed with the truth of what she was saying, but this album moved me. This album rearranged my consciousness like no other album had done up to that point. Now, there were other albums and songs that did this to me in my life up to that point, but what was different about the way that this one arrested me was that this was the first album where, the, where learning the lyrics and the music, I was able to see through them to what the artist was saying about life and truth and God. It was the first album that I can remember that, that made it click for me that you don't just listen to music, you listen through music. And if I follow the lines, like all the lines, the signs, the truth, the beauty, the good, to find the beyond in this album. I would even play this album for people in my, in my, my car and break down and pause and like, this is what this means and this is what this means. And I was like, I would do that. I was probably very, very annoying. Like I probably am being to some of you right now. This album for me was subjectively satisfying and objectively valuable. And I would say that what, what was really happening to me, what, and what was really going on to me when I was listening to this album is that I was struck by beauty. I was struck by beauty. The Swiss theologian Hans Urs von Balschar, born in 1905, died in 1988, 
wrote on beauty, wrote extensively on beauty and the transcendentals. And he wrote that beauty is not just superficial decoration. He said what beauty does, what true beauty does, is it stops you. It arrests you. This is like aesthetic arrest. When you're struck by beauty, beauty, true beauty stops you, but not only that, it elects you. It chooses you, and then it sends you. He wrote that beauty stops you, chooses you, and then sends you. This is what I felt like what happened to me in this album, that it like stopped me, it chose me to understand it, and it sent to me out differently. Now, you could say that I came in contact with a beauty, and because beauty is a transcendental, I was drawn beyond this album to something else. Now, I'm sure this has happened to you before. It might have been after you saw a piece of art and meditated and thought about a piece of art, or after a play or a musical, or after an album, or a song, or a movie, after meeting your spouse, this happens, after driving Highway 1 down to Big Sur at dusk, this happens all the time. And what is that thing that happens when it feels like something is grabbing you, like something is arresting you, and opening your eyes to see something bigger? What is that? Now, I want to suggest to you that you are coming into contact with beauty and its objectivity, its concrete realness, which is both subjectively satisfying and objectively valuable. And when you come in contact with beauty, you just don't come into contact with beauty, but you come in contact to the transcendent quality of beauty, because beauty is a transcendental. Now, it might be a good time right now to define what a transcendental is and what constitutes a transcendental, philosophically. Now, to do so, I will quote a really, really smart philosopher named David Bentley Hart. Now, if you know David Bentley Hart and you can understand him, you're way smarter than me. I understand almost nothing of what he says. (laughs) I read his books, I listen to his lectures, I understand, about 90% of what he says and he writes, I do not understand at all. He's way too smart, and I don't have enough time to look up every word he says. But the 10% that I do understand, I give to you. Here it is. (laughs) Now, he's borrowing here from Thomas Aquinas, so if this sounds familiar to you, if you've studied Thomas Aquinas, that's why. He says this, quote, a true transcendental is a perfection in which all existing things participate in some degree or other as a necessary condition of their existence, and a property that is in its infinite and absolute reality is convertible with all the other transcendentals, and that may therefore be properly regarded as, a divine, as divine names, as in some sense pointing towards God and himself. So I'll keep that up there, and I'll try to explain this to those of you like me. A few things that he's saying that makes up a transcendental. The first thing is that transcendental is something that everything that exists is in some way participating in. That is, everything that exists in some way is participating in what's true, what's good, and what's beautiful. He also says, secondly, in any of the transcendentals, in their absolute beauty, they are exchangeable with any and all other transcendentals. For example, truth in its fullest and most absolute reality is good. And goodness in its fullest and most absolute reality is beautiful. And beauty in its most absolute reality 
is true. The good, the beautiful, and the true can be interchanged with one another in their fullest reality. And, you can even go further than that, for truth to be truly true, it has to be good and beautiful. And for goodness to be truly good, it must be beautiful and true. And it goes on from there. Third thing he's saying is that the good, beautiful, and true all transcend themselves and find their reality in God. They literally point to God. I'll give you a philosopher that's just as smart, but a little easier to understand. Maybe smarter, because he can make it intelligible for the rest of us. Philosopher Peter Kreft says this, everything that exists is in some way true, good, and beautiful. Everything that exists. We'll talk about why in a bit. Now, I think we also do, and I'm gonna do this next few weeks, a little bit today, but next week and the week after. We'll have to do some work here because I'm not expecting you just to believe what Peter Kreft is saying and what I'm saying. I'll try to show you how this is accurate. But right now, you might have this thought. I would imagine you might have something like this. What about sin? Sin exists. How is sin in some way good, beautiful, or true? You might have that question, or you might eventually get to that question. And the answer is, the thing is, sin doesn't exist. Sin does not exist. Or rather, maybe a good way to think about it is, sin exists like dark exists. It's the absence of light. Sin is a privation. It exists as a lack of the good, true, and beautiful. Now, that doesn't mean that sin doesn't make things or create things like brokenness or selfishness or hate or vandalism that marks our world today and our news cycle. Sin has consequences and effects, just like dark does. But the ontology of sin is privation and that it lacks something. Now, in classical thought, all three transcendentals existed together. That is, the good, the beautiful, and the true are interdependent on one another. Like, or like David Bentley Hart says, in their fullest expression, they could be interchanged with each other because they, they all complete themselves in each other. And they're all made complete in God. But modern philosophy doesn't do this anymore. Philosophically, they are connected, but, they, but we've, we've kind of disconnected them in our modern philosophy. What began to happen during the Enlightenment and in modernism, especially with Descartes, though unintended, was, and I'll put this very simply, a divorce of the good and the beautiful from what can be known as the truth. We've removed the good and beautiful from truth. We think we could know truth, but we cannot know good and we cannot know beautiful. Those are subjective, but truth is objective. They are not connected anymore. So good is not objectively true anymore. And there is no standard for one to live up to that is built into the very cosmos that is orderly, good, beautiful, and true, like we talked about last week. We move from cosmos to universe. Now, if you've ever, you look up the definition of universe, you will say it's what we know with reference point to humanity, what we know. So what we know through hard sciences is what we consider the universe, where before it was the cosmos, and the cosmos then had moral obligations written into it. Now, 
the Apostle Paul, this is very interesting. Put this, this, this quote up in, in, in Romans 1. Now, if you've ever read Romans 1, what, Apostle Paul, what the Apostle Paul is appealing to here is the transcendentals, by the way. This, actually, this old form of how we see the world. We don't see the world this way anymore, but this, look at what he says. He says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth in their wickedness. Since, listen, what may be known about God is plain to them. This is, very, this is transcendental talk here. This is very Platonist talk. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. When Paul said that to the ancient world, they're like, oh my gosh, he's right. We study the world and the cosmos to know the nature of God, and yet we do not submit to God and his rule. We are guilty. And then Paul goes on to say that the, even, even the Jews are guilty. Everyone's guilty before God, okay? So, but this was, okay, so if you try to argue this point today, people are like, well, I, I, just, I just, I don't, I don't believe that God created the world, so what, what do you do with that? There's a, a Frank Ocean lyric coming to my head right now. Um, I'm going to say it because it's, I think it's good. He, sa- he, he says this line um, in, I think, uh, No Church in the Wild, if you ever heard that song with uh, Jay-Z and Kanye. He says, um, what's, um, what's, a, what's a mob to a king? What's a king to a god? What's a god to an unbeliever who don't believe in anything? You've ever heard that lyric? I think that's, this is exactly what's happened in our postmodern world. We're like, there was this hierarchy that we ultimately got to God, but then we just erased God. I don't believe in God. And then the hierarchy just falls apart. And then everything falls apart. The cosmos, the order falls apart. And then, you know, as the song goes, there's no church in the wild. This is insanity. We're, this is all insanity. If this is all insanity, let's just do everything we can to enjoy everything we have on this earth because what else is there to live for? So what Paul is doing here in Romans 1 is very transcendental talk. And he says, you know all this stuff by looking at the cosmos, the goodness and the truth and the beauty of it. All of it are woven into creation, and they reveal the invisible qualities of God, his power and his nature, which is pretty amazing. But like I said, the Enlightenment undid all of that, and we don't really objectively believe that anymore. We don't believe we can know moral knowledge. Moral knowledge is in the arena of belief and religion, not in the hard sciences. Now, Dallas Willard writes a lot about this, that we don't think we can know moral knowledge. If you want to put your morality on me, you better say that you believe that or your religion believes that, but we can't know that. The only thing that we can know are the hard sciences. That's the only thing we can know. Now, that's, that's new, by the way. That's very new in the Enlightenment. The only thing that we can know is truth, and that through hard sciences. We can't know goodness or beauty. Those are subjective and situational. This is how we believe, this is how we think. Now, the problem with all of this is this. Now, as I kind of name the water that we swim in, the problem is when we divorce goodness and beauty from truth, we also lost meaning. There's no meaning. I mean, ultimately, unless you somehow grab onto, let's just love each other, you end up in nihilism. If you follow the logic, you end up in nihilism, and you have to tell yourself, well, but, but we should love each other, right? We should just be nice to each other. That's all that we have to like, latch on to because we know that nihilism is, is ultimately, there's no meaning if you remove goodness and, 
and beauty from the world, and hard sciences are all there is. There is no meaning here. Now, the scientific developments of the modern world have certainly resulted in much positive change. Now, I'm not knocking hard sciences. I thoroughly believe in them. The development of technologies and medicine and communication and travel, just to name a few. I mean, there's that old joke that, um, that, we can, that when, when people used to travel coast to coast, it would take them, like, a, like, they would arrive at the other side of the coast, a whole different people group. People would die and people would be born and you would end up there like years and years and years later and new generations were born in your family. And now we take a plane and we watch an Adam Sandler movie and we get to the other side of the nation. Like that's, that's technology, right? Like it's, just, it's like a funny way of thinking about, te- like, like our hard sciences did that and it's good. Now, the, the, the downside though is that the mechanistic approach to the universe has resulted in a loss of teleology. That is a loss of purpose and a loss of meaning. Through the scientific method, we can discover what is, but we can't discover what ought to be. We discover what is, but we cannot discover what ought to be. Truth can tell us what is, but we don't believe it can tell us how you ought to live. We're actually not allowed to derive an ought from an is. We try to, and it's inconsistent at best. In the wake of all this, there has been a collapse of meaning, and we all know we, we don't know, actually, why we're here. We don't know uh, what this all means. We are kind of starting to collectively get frustrated by the loss of meaning. Some people call it malaise. Other people call it languishing. That was like the word of the year a couple years ago. Other people call it apathy. We're just exhausted of trying to create our own meaning out of the rubble of modernism and postmodernism. Now, this is why I believe. Now, if you just tuned out, come back. Here it is. There's a lot of history. Come back. This is why a return to the transcendentals as a vocation is so vital. Now, a little insider language here. This is meaning the church, this church, insider language. The transcendentals as a restoration of our vocation is vital to everything we've been talking about around here in this community for years. It is vital for our, for transformation for like the triangle transformation when we have truth and community and the Holy Spirit and practices and all of these things are actually how someone changes. The, the, this, is, this is key to all of this. Our Theology of the Body series where we talked about the, the, the horrible underbelly of Platonism and what that does to our modern world where the body doesn't count for anything. This, this has, the good, beautiful, and true has so much implications of how we embody our Christian faith in the world. This is vital for our rule of life and the fruit of all the practices in our rule of life. This is vital for our rootedness in this city and the generative ecosystem we hope to create through this building and our church. The good, beautiful, and true is what we're here for, what we're here to see and what we're here to cultivate. Now, before we go any further, what are we talking about when we talk about the good, beautiful, and true? What are some, I'm gonna give you some very quick definitions These could take whole entire books, and they have, but I'll just give you the quickest definition I can of them. First thing, before we get into the definition of good, beautiful, and true, realize this. Christian classical teaching says that God is the source of all of these. God doesn't have them. He is them. God doesn't have truth. He is truth. He doesn't have goodness. He is good. He doesn't put on beauty, he is beauty. 
And all of those things exist because he is there. They emanate from his being. He is good, he is truth, and he is beauty. And not just that, and this is very true, and this is something that you should write down, all truth is God's truth. All truth is God's truth. All goodness is God's goodness. And all beauty is God's beauty. All of it are yours in Christ. All of it. This is 1 Corinthians talk. All of it is yours. We tend to think unless it has a Christian label and it comes from the Christian subculture or unless I can find chapter and verse, it can't really be any of those things and I can't really partake in them. You have to do it very, I think you have to do it very wisely out of a love of philosophy, love of wisdom, like a love of wisdom, but yes, all truth is God's truth. When you find truth anywhere, it belongs to God because God doesn't say, that's my truth. It just emanates from him. If it's true, it emanates from God. If it's good, it emanates from God's goodness. And if it's beauty, it emanates from God's beauty. This is why in the very beginning of Genesis, it says that um, there was no sun or stars, but, but there was light. And you're like, where's the light come from? God. He is light. He like, all the stuff that we see emanates from him. Okay, so... You, you, you clear, this is, what, this, is what, this is what theologically we believe. All of them have their ultimate reality in God. They, and not only that, they all point to him. Okay, so let's look at quick definitions. Definitions of truth. What is truth? Truth is that which corresponds to reality. Truth is that which corresponds to reality. Truth is being aligned to God's reality because he is the source of all truth. Now, some of this truth happens through special revelation, like we can only know it because God reveals it to us, but there's also general revelation that is just there because we have a human mind and we want to know truth because we're made in God's image. And so we find out things like hard sciences, we find out things like philosophy and logos and all of these beautiful cosmos, we find out about all of these things because we have a mind that's made in the image of God to know truth. So there's general revelation that we could just know, but all of that's God's truth. Now, here's the thing. You can't have truth or own truth. You can only participate in truth. You can only participate in the transcendentals. You can't have them. They're not yours to keep. I don't have the truth. Christianity doesn't have the truth. Christianity participates in the truth as truth in himself reveals, as God himself reveals himself as through Jesus. So there's a different approach there that's really, really subtle, but very, very important. We don't have it. Like, why do you, why does Christians think they have the truth? We, no one has the truth. God's truth. We participate in the truth. We are participating in how God has revealed himself to humanity. And not only that, we submit to it. And this is the hardest part of truth. We submit to its truth. Now, we understand that with the hard sciences, we submit to gravity, we submit to the, the laws in order to make the things that we make. In the same way, we submit to the truth of God. Now, goodness, what does good mean? Goodness is that which aligns to its nature and its teleology. Okay, that might be... It has to do with virtue, but a good blender blends, right? How do you know it's a good blender? It blends. Why? Because it's, it's nature to blend, and it's its purpose to blend. It's teleology of a blender is to blend. Now, Vitamix is the best one. We can argue that all you want, but it is the be- but it's a good blender blends. Now, when your blender breaks, it's no longer good. It doesn't work. It's no longer good. Goodness, a good heater warms, a good car drives. It aligns to its nature and its intended purpose, its telos. Now, the reason why goodness has to do with ethics and virtue is that good is relational because God is relational and he created us in his image and so he created us with a nature 
and a telos. And it's our vocation to align ourselves to our nature and our purpose. Okay, and we'll, we'll do a little bit more of that maybe next week. Beauty. This is where I want to stay for the rest of the time. Beauty is that which awakens. Beauty is that which awakens. I want to spend some time on this because like what Dostoevsky said, he said, beauty will save the world. I, I really believe this. And I'm trying to explain why. Now, again, I'm going to quote David Bentley Hart. And I'm doing this not to break down the definition of beauty, but to give you to allow yourself to be awakened by a beautiful definition of beauty. I want it just to wash over you. I don't want you to analyze it. Just listen to it. This is what he says about beauty. Rather than commanding our attention with the force of necessity or pressing us with the triteness of something inevitable or recommending itself to us by its utility or purposiveness, the beautiful presents itself to us in an entirely unwarranted, unnecessary, and yet marvelously fitting gift. Beauty, as opposed to mere strikingness or brilliancy, is an event, or one might say, eventuality as such. It's the, it's the movement of a gracious disclosure of something otherwise hidden, which need not reveal itself or give itself. In the experience of the beautiful, and in this pure gratuity, we are granted our most acute, most, elusive, most lucid, most splendid encounter with the transcendence of the source that gives being to beings. The beautiful affords us our most perfect experience of existential wonder. All philosophy begins in this moment of wonder at the sheer thereness of the world. It's an amazement that lies always just below the surface of our everyday consciousness. It's not just the arts where we find it, it's in our experience of all reality, but we are usually forgetful of it. Beauty stirs us from our habitual forgetfulness of the wonder of being. It grants us a particularly privileged awakeness from our fallenness into ordinary awareness, reminding us that the fullness of being, which far exceeds the moment of its disclosure, graciously condescends to show itself again and again infinitude of an event, of a mere instance. In this experience, we are given a glimpse, again with a feeling of wonder that maybe momentarily restores to something like the innocence of childhood. Beauty is objective, and it awakens us to wonder. It's real. When beauty hits us, we know intuitively that it's good and true and that it participates in the thing that is good and true. Beauty has a type of pre-rational force on the soul. It bypasses our rationality and hits us in the soul, or we might say it hits us in the feels. It begins a wonder with us to want something more. It awakens us to something. Like, like Balthazar said, beauty stops us chooses us and sends us. Beauty is objective in this way, which brings us to Ratatouille. <laughs> Ratatouille, please tell me you've seen this movie. 
Okay, thank you. Gosh, I've been telling movies. Like, I've never seen that. I've never even heard of that movie. This is the movie. If you haven't seen it, tonight's the night. <laughs> movie night at your house, Ratatouille. Borrow someone's Disney Plus account. Okay, so <clears throat> this movie, Ratatouille, and the, I think the, one of the big questions of this movie is, do we experience beauty or do we experiment with beauty? Do we put beauty in a lab and break it down and move it into hard sciences or do we experience it? Now, there is someone in the movie who is a food critic and the food critic experiments with food as an art form. He experiments with the food, the form of art that is food and cooking. He experiments with it. He analyzes it. And because of that, he is depicted in this movie as angry and sad and dark. And he has these sharp features. And he speaks with this. And he only likes to find things in life, but they don't do anything to him anymore because the thing in itself becomes the object. And he doesn't see through it anymore. Until Remy, little chef, cooks him ratatouille. And this is, if you remember this, this scene right here, where he tastes ratatouille. This is pre-rational force on the soul. This is what beauty does. It bypasses rationality. It hits you in the very soul. He is hit in this movie with beauty. This is what David B. Hart said, restores us to a wonder like the innocence of a childhood. He literally has a flashback of childhood, and it changes him. From this point on in the movie, he's changed. Beauty hits him, and he's completely changed. His eyes open for the first time. He sees it, and then he sees through it to who he is, who he actually is. This is what beauty can do. Now, I want to rant for a second. I don't rant that often. <laughs> but let me rant. You can remove that. Christianity has historically been a beautiful faith. Beautiful. If you've ever done any sort of pilgrimage to see Christian sites, you know Christianity is a beautiful faith, aesthetically beautiful, and its sights and sounds and its languages and its theology, it is beautiful. And why is it beautiful? Because part of our core belief is that beauty is a transcendental that awakens people to the beauty, to the one where all goodness and truth and beauty is from. It awakens us to God. This is why there are icons and beautiful stained glass windows and architecture. It awakens you to something beyond. But, and here's the rant part, churches in our tradition, especially, have become about practical faith. They're about butts and seats, parking, where are people going to park? How do we design every stage to look like a concert venue? How do we design every church to look like, uh, uh, like, a, like a speaking venue or, a, or like some sort of like concert venue? And why? Because of impact. More people, more baptisms, more money, more staff, more impact, more people, more baptisms, more money, more staff, more impact, and it goes on and on and on and on and on, and then you have mega churches. Churches that have 50,000 people in them and we're like, whoa, like, why? 
why? Why? And then you have churches that have like five other satellite churches. And all under the guise of impact. And in the process, beauty, more often than not, actually probably every time, gets relegated as something that isn't practical. It isn't central. It isn't the point. That costs way too much money. The cheapest seats, the cheapest building, get people into the building. Why? Because all that matters is the soul because we're, we're Platonists in that, in that way. All that matters is the soul. And we, we don't think beauty is the point. But if we really understood beauty in its true form, we might see that it actually is the point. And more than that, it's the apologetic. It's the thing that awakens hearts that takes the modernist approach of analyzation and wakes them up to a new possible reality. It's the post, it takes the postmodern approach that says that there's no such thing as beauty and beauty is only subjective and it awakens them to the object of all beauty. See, for Plato, true beauty awakens eros. Now, if you're with us in our lectures with David Bennett, eros is not a bad word. Historically or even early Christianity, eros is a good word, especially if you read Augustine. Eros is love and desire. True beauty awakens eros, desire, love, within the human person, which serves as a gravitational pull that draws us into an encounter with the true and the beautiful. This is David Bentley Hart saying that the beginning of all philosophy, all philosophy begins at this moment of wonder at the sheer thereness of the world. It's an amazement that lies always just below the surface of our everyday consciousness. It awakens us to the thereness of the world. It's the beginning of all philosophy. It awakens eros in us, desire, longing to want to see more. And I believe as the church, we have an opportunity to represent beauty to the world, to creatively immerse people in the transcendence of God, the transcendent one, through our art and our creativity and our music and our liturgy, and our buildings, and our philosophy that is our love for wisdom. This is what happened to St. Augustine. Before St. Augustine was a Christian, he pursued the best beauty the world had to offer. He drank it in, he slept with it, he ate it, he did everything. He went and he learned it, he did it. He was doing all of it, but he didn't look through it to see God, and he never found meaning. Until one day, beauty that is true beauty as the transcendental made him wake up and awakened him. And in his confessions, he writes this. One of the most beautiful things I think Augustine ever wrote, he said, late have I loved you. That is, later on in my life, I loved you. I didn't love you at the beginning, later on. Beauty so ancient and so new. Late have I loved you. Lo, you are within, but I outside, seeking there for you, and upon the shapely things you have made, I rushed headlong. All the things I see in the world, I went after. I being misshapen. So you didn't fit. It didn't fit. It didn't match. You were with me, but I was not with you. They held me back from you, those things which would have no being were they not in you. Transcendental, by the way. From God emanates everything. You called and shouted and broke through my deafness. You flared, blazed, and banished my blindness. You lavished your fragrance 
I gasped, and now I pant for you. I tasted you, and now I hunger and thirst. You touched me, and I burned for your peace. Now, where does this leave us? We're done, but just another two minutes. This leaves us with our text, Hebrews 8, what was read at the very beginning. And what was read at the beginning is the beauty of the temple. And actually, the first mention of someone filled with the Spirit in the Bible are artisans given to create art and beauty for the temple, Exodus 31, if you don't believe me. So the temple and the tabernacle were created like Eden, where humanity walked with God. It was beautiful, it was sacred, it was holy, fellowship with God in his very presence, and everything in the temple, everything was beautiful, ornate. Why? Because God chose to use artistic imagery in the place closest to his presence, showing the reader that art reveals the sacred to us. This is why God did it. But we get to Hebrews, our text this morning, and these things in the temple served the purpose of displaying a greater heavenly reality. And this is what we learned last week in Plato's cave, the analogy of of the light in a cave and Jesus actually being that light. Now, the Christian view of the world and that of art and beauty differs entirely from Platonism here. This is where we kind of take a left turn. In the incarnation, God becoming flesh, what happens is God then sanctifies the flesh. The whole hope isn't to leave this earth and get to heaven when we die. That is not. It's actually, in Jesus, heaven invading earth. The physical world then does not only point away from itself to the greater reality, instead the transcendent world has entered into and permeates this material world. The incarnation displays the transcendent becoming eminent and dwelling the earth. And the implications for this are huge. So Jesus picks up bread and wine and says, this is my body. The transcendent has joined with the artistic expression of grain and grapes. Think about that. It shows us God. The Holy Spirit enters into our human bodies by means of Christ's redemption, and that historically through baptism. Now, Christian theology does not acknowledge the difference, does acknowledge the difference between heaven and earth, but these two realities are not in complete opposition to one another. And the meaning is, the implications for this is that art and the greater appreciation of beauty in this natural world, I think it should be clear, if the central event of Christianity is the incarnation of the immaterial logos, this means that the physical can and does serve to communicate the divine to us. God then imbibes himself in this world and not only do these things transcend, God fills them fills this world with his presence to where the things that we create and we do can actually show what God is like. And this is where we turn to our vocation. This is why I really believe that beauty can save the world. I'm gonna invite the, the, the band to come back out, and we're gonna do this. We're gonna do something a bit different. We're, I'm gonna ask you not to move around for the first couple minutes. And we're just gonna play, they're just gonna play uh, an instrumental song, and the lyrics are gonna be on the screen. Don't sing. We just want you to sit. Just sit, take it in, and that's it. Um, And as you take it in, uh, we pray that you would meet God. 
Lord, I pray that as right now as we're moving to, um, to using our ears and allowing um, the beauty of created uh, notes and sounds and strings and tensions and all the things that happen when we're doing music uh, to arrange themselves in ways that um, could move us, Lord. Awaken us to your beauty, to who you are. Wake us up. Wake us up from the mindless um, ugliness that we can easily dive into. Wake us up to your beauty, God. We'll respond right after this.